Why don't you grab your Bible and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 24 for this evening. Jamming, jamming through Jeremiah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of the longest books in the Bible. Um, and, and yet at the same time, it's also a bit of a challenge because it's, it's got a lot of bad news. Um, but embedded, what I like to do when I go through Jeremiah, I like to look for the, the bright spots of light that remind us that there's a, a bigger picture than just the, the doom and gloom of Jeremiah. There's actually a bigger picture that uh, is involved and it actually includes us uh, in some ways. And so uh, that hopefully we'll see that even tonight, little bright uh, spots of light, uh, what have you. So let's get to it. Jeremiah chapter 24. It says here in this little 10 verse chapter, we've got a, a basically a, Uh, A very simple parable. Uh, Let's see if Jeremiah can figure it out. Here we go. Uh, The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. So we're about to hear this little story uh, about a a basket of figs. Um, And um, this is when, uh, this gives us a time frame. Now, again, I've told you that the book of Jeremiah is not laid out chronologically. And so we're gonna bounce around in time tonight in these various chapters. But this chapter is the chapter of when Jeconiah, or if we, as we learned last week, you know, he had a curse put upon him. His name also is is Coniah, uh, Jeconiah or Coniah. And he's, he was cursed, uh, uh, but this curse is coming to fruition because you know, it's when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you'll notice that he's spelled differently, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadrezzar. Which one is it? Uh, we don't know, but it, it has to do with the, the way you'd pronounce it in the Hebrew or in the ancient languages. Uh, we actually say it nothing like, um, you know, uh, we, the, the way it was probably originally said. So we shouldn't be too particular about the little spellings here in the English translations. But is it Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, which one is it? Uh, not real sure, didn't live there at the time. But be that as it may, uh, the way to pronounce is probably really hard for us anyway. Um, but this tells us kind of a little bit about the time. Now, one thing you should remember historically about Jeremiah's prophecies is he was talking about uh, the Babylonians coming and wiping out Israel. But this would happen during that time in three waves. The first wave happened in 605 BC. And that would be the one where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be taken into captivity. Um, and it was sort of a smaller uh, invasion by the Babylonians where they took some of the people captive, but it wasn't that big of a deal. It was kind of a small deal. That was phase one, 605. But in 597, the second wave of the Babylonians came to wipe out Jerusalem. Uh, They didn't really wipe out Jerusalem, but it was brutal, Uh, 597. And that's the one here where Jeconiah or Coniah would be taken into captivity into Babylon. And this story uh, of the figs is is taking place in that time, uh, 597 BC. But then the third and final wave of Babylonian, uh, you know, you know, captivity uh, was there in 586 BC, where finally they utterly destroy uh, Israel and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed 
by Nebuchadnezzar, and it was the worst one. It was the one that Jeremiah was largely prophesying about. All of these were, but 605, 597, 586, kind of the three waves of Babylonian invasion there in Jerusalem. Well, this is that middle wave that Jeconiah was taken. And then the Lord kind of gives this little parable about the, the figs. It says here in verse two, one basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, naughty figs. Uh, uh, I guess they need to go to the naughty mat, uh, these figs. Uh, interesting word the King James uses here to uh, translate. The word is actually pretty simple. The word is rah in the Hebrew, um, which doesn't mean sun, that's the Egyptians. But uh, the word rah in the Hebrew, uh, it means bad. So they're bad figs. We have good figs and bad, bad figs. And the word uh, naughty and also the word evil that we're about to read here in the King James, it's all the same word rah in the Hebrew, which means bad. So it's pretty simple. Uh, there, I, I, I don't wanna make more out of the naughty thing because that was more of a 1611 King James English sort of way of saying bad, just naughty, naughty figs. Um, but, but all that to say, uh, you got some good figs and you got the other baskets with bad figs, which are, uh, which verse two could not be eaten. They were so bad, they were they just gone bad. Then said the Lord unto me, what seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, figs. Jeremiah figured it out. He, he said, I, I see what's in the basket, figs. And he says, uh, I, I said, figs, the good figs are very good. And the evil figs, or the ra Hebrew, bad figs, uh, they cannot be eaten, they are so evil or bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set my eyes upon them for good and will bring them again into this land and I will build them and I will not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them and I shall send a sword of uh, the famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. So a pretty simple picture, good figs, bad figs. You got the good basket and a bad basket. The good basket, well, the Lord's gonna take them and allow that group of people to go into captivity. We'll talk about why captivity and why for how long and all that stuff here in a bit. But it's a real simple illustration. You got your good basket and your bad basket. The bad basket's gonna be toast. He's gonna throw them out. They're gonna be useless and people are gonna go, that was amazing. Uh, they, they, they were good figs at one time, but now they're bad and they're worthless and they're to be thrown out. That's the imagery the Lord wants the Jews to see for those who were rebelling against the Lord and, and not following his way. Um, the other good figs will be taken into captivity. Why? Because the Lord has a plan for the Jews and he's not gonna wipe them out completely. 
uh, but he's gonna, he's gonna allow them to go into captivity. Now, here's a question. Why does the Lord allow them to go into captivity? Well, we start to see one reason. It says right here in our text, for their good. Um, you know, it's like, uh, did your mom or dad ever tell you, I'm doing this for your own good? And you're like, yeah, but I don't like it. Uh, I don't see anything good in it. But there was something about what your parents knew that this actually was, was gonna do you some good. Uh, you know, having to do those extra chores or whatever they made you do, uh, you know, um, it's for your own good. That's what the Lord's saying in verse five. He says, I will let them be taken off into the land of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Uh, and it's for their good. And verse six, for I will set my eyes upon them for good. So the Lord does see there's a small remnant of Jews that he's gonna say, I'm gonna let them go off into captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be numbered in the good fig basket, uh, but others would be numbered among the bad figs and their carcasses would be lying around the hills of Jerusalem uh, after the Babylonians would come. And, uh, and then verse seven even reaches further into future, probably speaking of the millennial kingdom. This is where the Jews will ultimately see them uh, worship the Lord, follow the Lord, kind of the description there in verse seven, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Jehovah, uh, and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they'll return to me with their whole heart. It's arguable that the Jews have never really returned to the Lord with their whole heart. Uh, maybe after, you know, um, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel came back from the 70 years of captivity. You could argue there was a season maybe where they were worshiping the Lord and, you know, with their whole heart. But that's ultimately gonna be seen in the future millennial kingdom when Christ returns and rules and reigns from Jerusalem. That's gonna happen and that'll be fulfilled then. But the evil figs or the bad figs, verses eight through 10 says, man, I'm gonna wipe out Zedekiah. He would be the king at the time. And uh, they're, they're, they're gonna be a proverb in the earth and a curse and a taunt. Uh, people are gonna be shocked to see how uh, badly it goes for those people. It's just that simple of a message. Um, sometimes I think um, the message of the Lord is actually way more simple than we'd like to make it. We, we like to make things more complicated and, and um, you know, well, what does this really mean and all this stuff, but I love it. It's just a basket. You got your good figs, you got your bad figs, bad figs are gonna be thrown out, good figs are gonna be saved. Um, it's just that simple. Um, and, and I wonder if the Jews were like, well, Jeremiah, are we really good figs? Or are we kind of mediocre figs? Or, you know, I wonder if they tried to confuse things. I, I feel like that's what the world does today with truth. The Lord just has absolute truth, you know, uh, embedded in scripture. And the world wants to say, well, you know, I don't know if that's really, you know, what the Bible says, even though it's what the, really, the Bible says. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know about that. And people just start making stuff up as they go because they don't get what the Lord's saying, even though it's written in black and, and white and it's very clear. Uh, be careful when people raise more questions than give answers in the word of God. Um, that's one of the things that happens. Well, well, the people, they were not gonna listen to Jeremiah and we'll see that. Uh, in, and this little chapter just kind of stands by itself with the, the little parable of the fig baskets. Uh, but, it's a, but it's a clear one and it's, it's a bit brutal. Now, in chapter 25, we sort of go back in time, about 17 or 18 years <clears throat> before all that happened where Jeconiah would be taken by Nebuchadnezzar. Now rewind and, and we get to an earlier time. And uh, Je Jehoiakim is on the throne at this time. Um, and, um, 
And the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And um, it says, verse two, the, uh, the which Jeremiah, the prophet, spake unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the uh, three and 20th year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened or hearkened. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not hearkened nor inclined your ear uh, to hear. Jeremiah is stating the obvious. I've been preaching now for you know many years, 23 years with no apparent fruit of his ministry. That's what he's basically saying to the people. I've been preaching, but you're not listening. That's what he says. They would not hear. They resisted the word of God. Um, that's how we begin chapter 25. And that was the case. The people did not wanna hear Jeremiah. They wanted to hear the other prophets. The other prophets had nice things to say. Uh, they were talking about good, sweet things, easy, easy things to listen to. But hearing about carcasses in the, in the side of the streets and stuff like that, sometimes I feel a little bit like Jeremiah, not with Athey Creekers. I'm, th I'm really thankful that we have a large congregation of people that are willing to stick with the truth and hear what the Bible actually says. But it is interesting out there because um, we get pushed back from people. Come on, Brett, don't say so, so many things that are not pleasant, you know. Uh, uh, you should only say things that are affirming and saying nice things. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but the truth is, Jeremiah was just speaking the truth, but they, did, they just plugged their ears like a three-year-old and said, la, 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 we don't wanna hear it. We don't, want any, we don't want anything to do with it. And Jeremiah is marveling that for those 23 years, they would not hear. By the way, it's interesting uh, because I see, you know, good solid Bible teachers today um, as they teach the word, they're criticized as sort of, well, you guys are just, you know, Debbie Downers or negative Nellies or whatever they want to call us. Um, but uh, what's interesting about that is that's what they were saying of Jeremiah. Uh, what Jeremiah was saying was true. You know, um, when it comes to the end times and prophecy updates, you know, there's, there's, there's a group of people in the church that love prophecy updates, but there's a large part of the, the church of, of Christ in, in, the, in the world today that sort of says, oh, you prophecy update guys, doom and gloom, and you just like to talk about all the horrible things that are supposed to come down. And there's a whole group that none of that's gonna happen. The rapture is not even real. Uh, you know, we're living in the millennial kingdom right now and, and Christ is gonna return when we elect Christian officials and we'll, we'll usher in the kingdom. Everything's gonna be rosy and good. The, the thing that's shocking about that to me is that's exactly the same, you know, argument that, that Jeremiah had before him. Jeremiah was saying, uh, things are not gonna be good. Things will get worse before they get better. Now, don't be deceived. You know, Jeremiah had a word of positive long-term future, even as we read just a minute ago, that the millennial kingdom's coming <clears throat> and the heart, heart of the Jew will be turned to the Lord. It's a good news. But before the good happens, there'll be a lot of bad. And, and, and there's some people that just don't wanna hear that, even though it's true. And, and uh, we're gonna see where they're, they're gonna wanna kill Jeremiah for, for saying bad news. 
Um, and uh, I, I kind of wonder if we're getting to that day again where, where Christians, some, only want to hear the, you know, they have itching ears and that they want to have people speak things that only make them happy. Uh, but uh, the problem is that may or may not be true. And you have to think about what is true. Um, just a word of advice, just because maybe a pastor who's teaching the Bible uh, doesn't always have the most always happy words and words of love and all that stuff, uh, it doesn't mean that he's still not speaking the truth. Uh, I, I've seen even where some good Bible teachers from times past have kind of over the years softened and said, ah, you know, we should only be speaking about good things and, and love and all this stuff. But I understand that. And, and that's the fun stuff. I love talking about grace and mercy and God's love. I talk about that every single service I do. But at the same time, God's love will not be fully appreciated until you hear about his wrath and what's coming and the judgment. There's a bad fig basket and there's a good fig basket. And if you're, you're saying, well, Brett, how do I know if I'm a good fig or a bad fig? It's simple. Are you, are you saved? Have you accepted the love of Christ? Um, you're a good fig and God's got a plan for you if you are declared righteous, like we talked about on Sunday, imputed righteousness. What a glorious truth that is. But, um, but there, there's an urgency and a reason for you to be saved because you don't want to be in the bad fig basket and head for destruction. Um, so watch out for this tendency today where pastors are only talking about love and grace and victory and happiness and all that stuff. Um, those things are true. But there is another side of the coin. And if you read your Bible, you're gonna have to deal with those things. Um, and it's, it's part of the story, part of the narrative. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration. It's good for correction, reproof, and instruction. Not just 20% of scripture uh, that's talking about hope or love or grace. It's those things too. I love that stuff, but it's the whole scripture, all scripture. Um, Paul said in Acts 20, uh, 20, 20, he said, you know, that he has not shunned to declare the whole counsel. He's held nothing, he's kept nothing back what was profitable to the church there in Ephesus, to the elders in Ephesus. Um, that's what you and I need to be drawn to. Lord, give us the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Um, I think sometimes a partial truth is not really the truth. And that's the problem. We, we tend to lean toward that. Be careful, church. Uh, have ears to hear not what man says, but what does the Bible teach? We'll see more of that as we get into this even deeper, but um, these people were refusing to listen to the word. By the way, in Proverbs 28, verse nine, listen to what it says about the person who will not listen to the word of God. It says in Proverbs 28, nine, he that turneth his ear away from hearing the word of the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Man, do you realize the gravity the Lord is saying? Your prayers will fail to fly. Your prayer will fall on deaf ears if you're one who says, yeah, 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 whatever, there's the Bible. And I know the Bible says this, but I'm not gonna listen to that. Then your prayers are a waste of time. That's what it says. Like there's a bad uh, repercussion of the person who doesn't wanna hear what the word says. That's what these people of Jeremiah's day, their prayers are not being heard. They think they could be pious and praying to the Lord, but the Lord's like, I don't hear you. Why? Because they're not listening to the word that Jeremiah has been preaching for these 20, you know, three years that are defined in verses one through four of chapter 25. Uh, that's what he's talking about. Well, chapter 25 goes on in verse five. Uh, they said, 
Turn ye again now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your doings and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and your fathers forever and ever. And go not after gods, other gods to serve them and to worship them and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. What was the work of their own hands? It was the making of these idols, uh, fashioning little gold statues. And we talked about that, uh, you know, what was happening in Jeremiah 10 when they cut a tree out of the forest, decked it with silver, nailed it to a stand. Uh, what was that? Well, they weren't making a Christmas tree as some people like to make you think. They were cutting a tree, cutting off its branches, shaping it into an idol, covering it with gold and worshiping it as an idol. That's what they were doing. Uh, and, and so this is the work of their hands that's being talked about here. It's a curse to their own hurt when they make these idols. Verse eight, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will uh, bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a an hissing and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the uh, millstones and the light of the candle. All of that's gonna be taken. Sounds like 2020. Uh, laughter and mirth's gone, the candle's out, depressing times. That's what the Lord's saying, it's gonna be dark and it's gonna be ugly because they refuse to hear what the Lord says. So the Lord says, I'm gonna send, interesting delineation. He says, I'm gonna send my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Isn't that interesting? You know, Nebuchadnezzar, if you know the story from the book of Daniel, um, he was a pagan, uh, prideful pagan. Now, I believe Nebuchadnezzar will see him in heaven. And the reason is because there in the book of Daniel, he is seemingly very much converted to be a believer in the, the true and living God. And he starts, he, he, he finishes off, what is it, chapter four, where he um, sounds like Paul the apostle. You know, he's like talking about the Lord and those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. You know, that's how he ends his life, talking about how God's able to humble people, uh, those that walk in pride like me. Uh, that's what Nebuchadnezzar would say. But even when Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan, he, the Lord says, that's my servant. Um, did you know that the Lord can use unbelievers in your life, um, unbelievers uh, to help do the Lord's will on this planet? For some of you, it was your unbelieving parents that helped teach you and train you things that were actually things the Lord wanted you to learn. For others of you, it was an unbelieving teacher you know, I, I remember there's stories like, you know, when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, joins the wilderness wanderings, who was not a believer. He was a Midianite. Um, and he was not a believer in the, the, the God of the Jews, Jehovah. Uh, but he comes and gives Moses some advice. And Moses goes and says, okay, and he takes it. And that, as it turns out, that's what the Lord wanted him to do. He was using Jethro, the unbelieving father-in-law, to come in and talk to him about something he needed to change. So, Kind of an interesting thing to remember is the Lord can use these, you know, non-believers sometimes. Uh, they're, they're vessels in his hand. Now, sometimes he'll use them 
for a while, but then he'll judge them for the, the service that they did because it was against the people. Uh, you'll see that here in a second. I'll show you how that shakes out. But uh, basically he says, I'm gonna make it desolate there in Jerusalem, which he would, and he did. And it would be the voice, uh, the sound of mirth would be gone, but a perpetual astonishment and hissing. Again, if you're just joining us, every time the Bible talks about this hissing, when, when something horrible happens, it's, it's a funny old English way of saying in the translation here, uh, is there'd be people whistling in astonishment. That's what it means. They were hissing. It doesn't mean they were running around like snakes. It means that they were walking by going, like, wow, that's crazy. Look at Jerusalem, it's totally destroyed. That's what it means to hiss uh, there or whistle in astonishment is the idea. But then the Lord says, he continues in verse 11, and this is, this is key. Verse 11 says, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon. Now, before we get into how he's gonna use Nebuchadnezzar uh, as the servant, but then what happens to the king? Well, that's, that's gonna be a later event when, when Babylon will be punished for destroying Jerusalem and Israel. But the Lord's gonna use Babylon and, and the Lord is gonna then take the children of Israel into captivity. And it's a very specific captivity, 70 years of captivity. Um, the question is, why did the Lord take his people into captivity? If you, if you wanna, you know, if you made that a question, you could do a Bible study on that. Let me give you a, sort of a quick reason. Why did the Lord choose 70 years specifically of captivity? Um, there's reasons for the captivity in general, but there's also a reason for the 70. The general reasons are, number one, if you're taking notes, the reason uh, that the children of Israel had to go off into captivity was to, number one, free them from idolatry free them from idolatry. The people were caught up in worshiping idols. Uh, and really that's the equivalent, equivalent of sensuality, money, human sacrifice. Those kinds of things were what they worshiped and why they worshiped these pagan deities and, and what have you. Uh, jot it down, but it's Jeremiah 16 that we were reading a couple weeks ago, verse 10. It says, it'll come to pass when you show this people all these words, they shall say, why did the Lord pronounce this great evil upon us? What is, uh, what is our iniquity? And then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods and served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me that I have kept, uh, that, that you have not kept my law. So I will do worse than your fathers. So what's going on? The Lord tells them, why are you gonna go off to captivity? Because you guys have forsaken the true and living God. So the Lord wanted to have them off into captivity to free them from idolatry. Um, by the way, where did they pick up the idolatry? In the land of Canaan, which was the promised land, which was the land of Israel. Dragged off into Babylon, the Jews there in God's you know, wrath upon them, uh, or I should say punishment, uh, they did not get caught up in the idolatry of Babylon totally. Guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, they refused to eat the king's meat. They refused to become Babylonians. And uh, sometimes you gotta get people you know, out of the land of Canaan to get Canaan out of the land of people, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. Like all that, the, the idolatry that they had absorbed. It's like the Lord says, get them out of there. And then when you go back, a remnant that goes back, you'll be free of idolatry. That's part of this reason. Um, it's, and like we read in chapter 24, verse five, for their good, he's gonna send them into captivity. What good would come of it? To free them from idolatry, that's number one. 
The second reason for 70 years of captivity is number two, to witness evangelically. Uh, by the way, did you know the Jews don't witness evangelically at all? The Jews, you'll never see a Jew trying to convert someone to Judaism. You might find a Messianic Jew or um, a uh, Gentile who uh, follows Messianic type Jewishness and they'll try to you know, recruit for that. But you know, there's no evangelism in Jewishness. But what's interesting is the Lord did use during that time uh, the Jews to be a witness to the world, even though God had punished them and they were dragged off into Babylon, but they became a great witness to the Gentiles. Uh, were they a good witness when they were there? Well, ask Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel were all good witnesses of people who believed in the true and living God and ultimately Nebuchadnezzar would be saved. Ask Darius, the Mede, Daniel in the lion's den, what a witness that was. You know, the, the, the lesson for us to learn is that God can be seen in our lives when we go through various trials and troubles. When was the Lord seen by the Gentiles the most? When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and those guys were in captivity. That's when the Lord was able to be uh, shown um, as a witness you know, to the people uh, there. Well, all that to say, number one, to free them from idolatry. That's why the 70 years captivity. Uh, number two, to witness evangelistically. Uh, but number three, and this explains why 70 years precisely, um, to restore the land physically. What do you mean, Brett? Well, there's a little bit of a line you have to go through. First of all, there's the law. Second of all, there's the sin. The law that they were supposed to be keep keeping for all the centuries, since they, you know, Joshua led them into the promised land. What was the law? Well, it's Leviticus 25, verses one through six. And it basically says there, you know, but on the seventh year, the land shall be a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. Um, interesting that the seventh year, there was a Sabbath rest, not just the Sabbath day, one in seven you know, days you're to rest and take a Sabbath, but you were to give the land a break for a year. And what's interesting, land going fallow, that was, that's something we know scientifically now that you gotta give the land a break once in a while. But it was more than just for the farming you know, attribute and all that. It was also for you know, the whole thing of, of basically you know, um, you know, to, to have the Jews submit that to the Lord as a sacrifice. It wasn't just for the soil uh, reconstruction. It was that too, but it was also saying, we're gonna be obedient to God's word and they were not. So for, um, for all those years, they chose to reject um, that, that Sabbath year of rest. Uh, that's, that's, so the law was there in Leviticus 25, one through six. The sin itself was, uh, was here in the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles uh, chapter 36. It says this in Second Chronicles 36, verse um, 20. It says, them that had escaped from the sword carried away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath uh, to fulfill three score and 10 years. What's that? Well, as it turns out, the Jews lived there for 490 years. Of those 490 years, they did not, give the land its Sabbath rest. So they owed the Lord 70 years. Um, and the Lord says, I'm taking those 70 years. That's what Jeremiah says. Now, by the way, when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel 
Um, he actually talks about this. He says, I, Daniel, understood by the reading of the books. And what books are, is he talking about? Second Chronicles 36, the book of Jeremiah. He understood how long their captivity would be. Um, Daniel knew that it would be a 70 year captivity because he read the Bible. I love that. Well, all that to say, Jeremiah uh, is saying it'll be 70 years. And the reason why is number three, to restore the land physically. Um, I guess if there's a lesson for us to learn in that, that man, if the Lord tells you to do something, do it. You, you know, you're never gonna, you know, outsmart God in, in the way to do things. When his word tells you to do something, we should just do it. Um, the people thought, well, we can get away with an extra day or an extra year, uh, you know, of, of sowing and reaping if we just forget that Sabbath thing for a while. But um, man, you, you know, you always get nailed by sin. Be sure of this, your sin will find you out. And that's what happened here to the Jews. Very practical lesson. Um, uh, so all that to say, the reasons for 70-year captivity, flee from idolatry, a witness evangelistically, and then thirdly, to restore the land physically. Uh, that's why 70 years of captivity. So um, after that 70 years, it says here, verse 12, it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it a perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it. Even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves <clears throat> of them also. And I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. So sure enough, after Nebuchadnezzar, uh, then came, you know, uh, Nabonidus, uh, who was the next leader of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. After Nabonidus uh, would come Belshazzar, uh, which some believe was the son of Nabonidus, uh, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you'll remember there in Daniel chapter five, the whole story of Belshazzar, who saw the handwriting on the wall, pooped his pants, uh, you know, and Daniel came in and remember that whole story? He passed the pampers. That's that story um, where this crazy king was drunk and, he, and he, he just freaked out. But that's the king that lost Babylon. And that's the Lord predicting it right here. I will, I will bring these kings down. And what, what will happen to Babylon? Well, after Babylon was taken by the Darius and Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, Darius the Mede, then the Medes and the Persians ruled Babylon for a long time. After the Medes and the Persians, then would come the Greeks, uh, Alexander the Great, then eventually the Roman Empire. But eventually Babylon would become a desolation. You know, it really was just desert and old ancient ruins uh, until Saddam Hussein. Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, he started to try to rebuild Babylon. Uh, and it's interesting because he wanted to see it come to its former glory of the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Did you know that Saddam Hussein, who, you know, they hung because of the whole uh, situation there with Iraq, uh, Iran, or I should say the desert storm and the, uh, the, the whole, uh, you know, United States finding Saddam Hussein in that little hole. It's kind of a crazy story. But before we killed him, uh, he was trying to rebuild Babylon. Um, and uh, he built a bunch of palaces and buildings. We have a soldier in our, uh, in our church who actually was part of the team that went in and, uh, and secured that area where, where Nebuchadnezzar, as he called himself, 
you know, Saddam Hussein. Uh, and he also brought back the symbol of Babylon, the lion as the symbol. And he was trying to make it the old, old school uh, Babylon in its glory and its greatness. Uh, but now it's all kind of sitting there in ruin and it hasn't been restored. Uh, the big question is, and I get off course here, but um, is Babylon gonna be restored someday? Well, the answer is yes. The question is, is it physically gonna be there in Iraq where, you know, uh, it's about 50 miles from Baghdad, the, the ancient location of Babylon. Is that place gonna be rebuilt? Because the Bible talks about the end days, Babylon sort of coming back and there'd be an economic Babylon, a religious Babylon, and it's gonna grow into this mighty thing. Um, some people believe it's more of a global uh, rendition of Babylon and it won't necessarily uh, need a location like there in Iraq. Others believe it'll be literally rebuilt uh, in that region. Uh, I don't know for sure. But uh, I do know it's gonna be more global in nature, the religious and economic part. It's gonna be a one world government. And that's what the book of Revelation and other places in the Bible talk about that. So it will be, Babylon will come back into power. But the question is, what is it gonna look like? What is it gonna be? And that's where we'll probably talk about that in some of our prophecy updates as we get up on some of that, uh, on those issues. Well, all that to say, Babylon would eventually come to desolation. And we've seen that for centuries now, it's been that way in desolation. Well, um, so all this is gonna happen to those that caused Israel trouble. The Lord's gonna retaliate for the Babylonians wiping out Jerusalem. But meanwhile, they're the servants of the Lord doing his bidding after they're done wiping out the Jews. Why would he do that? Well, the Lord says, I'm gonna bless the people that bless Israel. I'm gonna curse the people that curse Israel. So that's why the Lord's gonna pour out his cup of fury. Now, this is the language he's gonna use here in a second. And then we're gonna see a list of nations uh, that the Lord's gonna judge because of what they did to the Jews during the time that Jeremiah is talking about the, the days of Jeremiah's prophecy. <clears throat> and that's really the rest of chapter 25. Um, verse 15, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of his, this fury at my hand and cause all the nations whom I send thee to drink it. Um, the cup of fury, you might wanna mark that in your Bible because it's mentioned 14 times in the Bible, the cup of God's fury. Uh, whether you're talking about you know, bowls of wrath uh, in the book of Revelation, similar kind of imagery. Um, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 14, verse 36. John chapter 18, verse 11. There's a bunch of places, even Ezekiel, the prophet in um, uh, Ezekiel 23, 31, and more places. Even Zechariah talks about a cup of trembling uh, uh, that's gonna happen to those nations that try to deal with Jerusalem. Um, so this idea of a, of a cup of this fury that God's gonna pour out, um, you, you need to picture it, if, if you would, remember at the little water parks? There's some of those water parks that have a bucket hanging up high and the children are playing under it, but this bucket slowly fills and then when that bucket gets to the full, it tips over and splashes all the children. And that's glorious and fun and surprising and great. But if you could kind of picture that, only picture it as God's fury being filled up. That's this cup of fury. Um, when the cup starts, when it gets to the fullest, it's gonna tip over and God's gonna pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. We've seen little tips of that in various times. This is one of them, Jeremiah, the Babylonians, the Jews being wiped out, Jerusalem being destroyed, splash, cup of fury. Uh, but there's gonna be the ultimate one 
when the rapture of the church happens, then the Lord's gonna pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. That's this cup of fury that's being filled up. It's gonna tip. No man knows the day or hour when it's gonna tip, but it's gonna come out. And uh, that's what's being talked about here, but in the local application of Jeremiah. So verse 15, thus saith the Lord God of Israel to me, take the wine, the cup of this fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send to thee to drink it. And they, uh, and they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Uh, the word mad, there's not that they're gonna be angry, they're gonna be crazy is the idea. Um, and um, then it says, verse 17, I took the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink to, unto whom the Lord was, had sent me. To wit, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the kings thereof and the princes thereof to make them a desolation and an astonishment and a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt and his servants and his princes and his people and all the mingled people and all the kings of the land of Uz and the kings of the land of the Philistines and Ashkelon and Aza and Ekron uh, and the remnant of Ashdod. I love that region, by the way. That's, we're talking about the Gaza Strip and down near there. Uh, if you go to Israel, uh, one of the most beautiful areas, in my opinion, is down there by Ashkelon and uh, Ashdod. Um, and it's almost, it reminds me sort of like Laguna Beach. The only problem is it's right on the border of Gaza and that's where the missiles fly and tend to drop in that area. But other than that, it's beautiful. Uh, I've been there uh, just a couple years ago. We spent some time down there and it's pretty nice. But during these days, that, you know, that, would, that would be that place where the ancient Philistines lived, uh, the cities of the Philistines, Ascalon, Asdod, Ekron, and what have you. But then he moves to Jordan, uh, what is modern day Jordan, Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon. Uh, all of them are Jordanians now, but uh, during that time, they would drink this cup of wrath. And all the kings of Tyrus and the kings of Zidon uh, and the kings of the isles, which were beyond the sea. Tyre and Sidon would be up north, uh, it was part of the region of Lebanon today. Um, and so basically all around Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, all of these places. And then we moved to even Saudi Arabia, Dedan, verse 23, and Tima and Buzz and all that are in the utmost corners uh, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the desert, and the kings of Zimri, and the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes, and all the kings of the north, far and near, uh, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world, which are upon the face of the earth, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Who's the king of Shishak? Uh, this is an interesting word, and for you Bible students, if you want, you can do an interesting study on this word Shishak. But most scholars believe this is an encrypted word that Jeremiah uses to talk of Babylon and specifically Nebuchadnezzar or the leader or the king of Babylon. Shishak is sort of an encrypted word for Babylon uh, is what they believe. Verse 27, therefore thou shalt thou say unto them, thus saith the Lord um, of hosts, the God of Israel, drink ye and be drunken and spew and fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. Um, this uh, language about drink it up and party and barf and fall down because you're never getting up again. It's not encouraging people to become alcoholics or party animals. 
it's like, you know, when Jeremiah, or pardon me, when uh, Solomon's mother says, you know, um, if you're drinking strong wine and strong drink, let that be for people who wanna perish. That's the language that's being used here. Uh, you know you're gonna perish and die, so you might as well just uh, drink it up and die yourself. That's kind of what it's saying. Um, and um, so verse 28 shall be, if they refuse to take the cup at thy hand to drink, then thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, you shall certainly drink. For lo, I begin, I begin to bring evil on the city, which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished? You shall not be unpunished. For I will call the, a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore prophesy thou against them all these words and say unto them, the Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall ma uh, mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, this idea of treading grapes is a prophetic imagery. Uh, Jesus is gonna come it is second coming from Basra and he'll have, uh, you know, his vesture will be uh, looked like it's been, you know, he's been squishing grapes, uh, but it's the blood of those, the enemies of the Lord that they're gonna have their blood squished like grapes. That's the imagery of the end times. And that's what Jeremiah is employing here as well. Verse 31, a noise shall come even to the ends of the earth for the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh and he will give them that are wicked to the sword, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coast of the earth. And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth, even to the other, uh, other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. Whew, that's horrible words for a Jew to hear that their bodies are just laying there like manure on the ground and, and then eventually they'd be covered by the winds and the dust and the generations. That's where their bones would be hidden only by dust in the wind. Boy, that's a, that's a ugly picture. Now some Bible prophecy buffs see here um, more, you know, Jeremiah's gaze going past, you know, uh, 605, 597, uh, 586 BC and maybe even future yet still even of our time where from the ends of the earth, there's gonna be death like this. Uh, he does seem to go more into a global sort of a destruction. And this could be one of those areas of the Bible that's talking about a, a dual or even a triple fulfillment of Bible prophecy. That's something that you do see a lot of in the Bible, uh, sort of waves, just like the waves of the Babylonians coming, the three waves, prophecy works the same way. Um, it comes in waves, it seems. Well, verse 34, how ye shepherds, and cry and wallow yourselves in the ashes, you principal of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are accomplished and ye shall fall like a pleasant vessel um, or a vessel of desire, like a very nice vase is gonna fall and crash. And the shepherds shall have no way to flee, nor the principal of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a howling of the principal of the flock shall be heard. For the Lord hath spoiled their pasture and the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He hath forsaken his covert as the lion for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. 
So the question is, with all this heavy language, uh, the wrath of God and the fierce anger of the Lord and the cup of fury being poured out on all these nations, how do you think that made people feel about Jeremiah? Well, uh, chapter 26 is gonna tell us what they are thinking about Jeremiah's prophecies. It says in verse one of chapter 26, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, came this word of the Lord saying, thus saith the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command thee to speak unto them, diminish not a word. So Jeremiah is told again to go stand. But this time, remember where he was standing before? Uh, if you recall in chapter seven, he, he was told to go stand in the gates. But now he's in the courtyard. He's moving clo closer into the temple. And they would consider this part, part of the temple. And, um, and so he's now speaking the words. But there's, there's something here that I see that I think is important where he, he commands him to speak, but he says, make sure and don't diminish, not, diminish not a word. Have you ever found yourself diminishing a word? You've got something hard to say to someone, but you, so you try to pat it, but you pat it so much that it actually, um, you know, it actually kind of, you know, doesn't, doesn't even come out as truth. Uh, kind of interesting, isn't it? Don't diminish even one little word. And so, so really that's something that um, we see here that, that he's reminded. I wonder if Jeremiah was tempted to sort of pat his words a little bit after speaking such bold words. And it gets back to some of the problems, I think maybe why pastors that I was talking about earlier today that are afraid to speak the whole truth and nothing about the truth is because they, they don't wanna come off brutal. So they wanna diminish the hard words to say. Um, boy, there's something I've learned over the years, by the way, and this is just coming from years of, you know, being a pastor and leading teams and groups and stuff like that. And, and that is whenever I try to pad something and say it nicely uh, and softly and very considerate and hoping not to offend, but trying to still say the same thing, I end up offending and they end up getting mad and stomping away angrily and all that. Whereas sometimes if you just say what the Lord wants you to say, I'm not talking about being mean or just trying to be a jerk, but you know, saying, you know what, um, here's what you need to do. And just call a spade a spade, just tell them like it is. Um, sometimes people will almost be more thankful for that than when you're trying to tiptoe and walk on eggshells and stuff like that. I wonder if Jeremiah had that temptation to just sort of say a little bit of a word that would be diminished. Uh, again, it's what uh, Acts chapter 20, I was, I was telling you about before. Paul said, I will not do that. Let me read it directly, Acts 20, 20, I mentioned earlier. He said, and I, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Man, he gave them the full counsel, the full word of God. And, um, and that's what Jeremiah is told by the Lord to do. Don't diminish a word, very important. Well, verse three, if so be, they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way that I may repent me of the evil which I propose to do unto uh, them because of the evil of their doings. Now, we've done a lot of talk about this word repent and uh, the word means to relent. It's a better translation probably is relent rather than repent, but it means that he, he's going a different direction. Well, the Lord never changes. Um, that's, that's a false dilemma right there to say, well, the Lord never changes so he can't change. But um, what if the Lord leaves things up for purposeful change? I'm, the Lord says, I'm gonna do this. And if they do this, then I'm gonna go there. And, if I, and it's all the Lord's plan anyway. Um, and he's going this direction. Uh, the Lord says, okay, now I'm gonna change this direction. He can do that in his sovereignty. 
Um, and uh, you could argue, well, did he know he was gonna do it? Probably. Then has it really changed? I don't know. But don't be all hung up on this idea of the Lord repenting of the evil, which he purposed to do. That's a phrase in the Bible that means he relented or he was wanting to relent or change uh, based upon a, a, a people group's repentance. Um, and that's, that's what that's talking about there. Verse four, and thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord, if you will not hearken to me, to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not hearkened. Then will I make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. So they heard him say it. You're gonna be like Shiloh. Well, why are we gonna be like Shiloh? Because Shiloh got wiped out. Shiloh was that original location for the tabernacle when they first came into the promised land. And it was there for a couple hundred years, but it became a place of desolation. Um, and it was used as an idiom of what the Lord would do to the people. It'd be destroyed like Shiloh is the idea there. Well, um, only, um, only these are the people, not all the people, but the priests and the prophets, um, they, they have something to say and they, uh, they're gonna arrest Jeremiah and they're gonna put him under trial. Let's take a look in verse eight. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking, all the Lord had commanded him to speak and all the people and all the priests and the prophets and all the people took him saying, thou shalt surely die. <laughs> That's a tough day at the office. We're gonna kill you. That's what they're saying. Why hast thou prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house shall fall like Shiloh and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant. Um, and all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So here he is in the house of the Lord speaking in the courts, preaching, and they're like, we're gonna kill you. So verse 10, when the princes of, the, of Judah heard these things, then they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Probably the new gate is the east gate or the gate called beautiful. Uh, that's probably the gate we're referring to here. Verse 11, then spake the priests and the prophets to the princes and all the people saying, this man is worthy to die for he hath prophesied against this city and ye have heard with your ears. Hey, you're not supposed to say something bad about Jerusalem. You shouldn't say anything bad. If you don't have anything bad, nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's kind of what they're saying. But they're the false prophets. They're the ones that are misguided. Then spake Jeremiah verse 12 unto all the princes and all the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city and all the words that you have heard. Therefore now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will repent of the evil that he hath uh, pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good and meet unto you. But know ye for certain that if you put me to death, you shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon the inhabitants thereof for of truth. The Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. Uh, it sort of reminds me of Daniel, you know, chapter three, where basically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down and worship the image that Nebi had set up. But they said, we're, we're not gonna bow down. And, 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 you know, even if the Lord doesn't save us, kill us whatever, we're still not gonna bow down you know, to your, your uh, false image. And that's kind of Jeremiah's attitude. I'm just speaking the word of the Lord. You can do whatever you want to me, but you'll have innocent blood on your hands if you kill me. 
So verse 16, then said the princes and the, all the people unto the priests and the prophets. So, so it's almost like Jeremiah is compelling them there. Some of the people are starting to believe Jeremiah. They're starting to say, wait a minute, maybe he's right. Uh, not the priests, but some of the princes and some of the people. Verse 16, said to the priests and the prophets, they're all the false ones. This man is not worthy to die for he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people saying, Micah, the Morishite, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house of uh, high places of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah put him all at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them. Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. Um, boy, this, I love what these guys are doing. Um, uh, these, these elders of the land, they're doing the right thing. What, what are they trying to do to come to a conclusion? They're going back to scripture. They're saying, well, man, remember the story uh, there in Hezekiah's day when Micah the prophet spoke and remember how they listened to him and they, they, maybe we should do that. That's always a good thing. If you're wondering what to do, look to scripture. That's what these guys are doing here. Should we kill Jeremiah? Well, uh, maybe, maybe he is speaking of the Lord and from the Lord. Um, so we should not do this. Verse 19, he says, thus we might procure great evil against our own souls. Verse 20, and there was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjat Darim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim, the king, and all his mighty men and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. And Jehoiakim, the king, sent men to Egypt, namely Elna, uh, uh, Elnathan, and the son of, uh, the son of uh, Achbor, um, and certain men with him to Egypt. They fetched forth Urijah out of Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Nevertheless, the hand of uh, Hikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So we have here this interesting story of where they're saying, we're gonna kill you, Jeremiah, but then they reason. And some of the elders say, what does the scripture say? Well, remember the scriptures when those prophets said, and they were saying, we gotta be careful. And the king had already put to death this Urijah guy who was prophesying, who, went, who ran for his life and went to Egypt, um, slew him. And so they're ready to slay Jeremiah, but these elders say, man, let's, let's leave him alone for now. So uh, it seems like Jeremiah might, might be getting saved uh, from certain peril for now. But there, there is coming a day where he's gonna get more trouble for his preaching. You know, I worry that some people are afraid, like, like Jeremiah, you know, I um, wonder if he was tempted to hold back. But I love how this chapter begins. You know, don't, don't hold back, speak the truth right there. You know, and, and it almost cost him. But, but it says, diminish not a word. Don't diminish a word. You see, I worry that if we're diminishing the word and talking about things that are just fluffy and fun and the church is no longer speaking truth like Jeremiah, even the things that hurt are doom and gloom or brutal, 
I wonder if we're actually doing a, a disservice like the prophets of the day or the priests who are saying, yeah, we're gonna be great. We're gonna be in victory. It's all good. Um, they were actually preaching to their own detriment, their own destruction. And yet Jeremiah is told, don't diminish even a word. You know what diminishing the word is like? It, it reminds me of a story. There was a little old town back in the day um, and it was one of those little towns that had a, a one-stop sign and, and then one railroad track kind of went through uh, a part of the countryside there. The problem is nobody knew when the train was going by and there wasn't the railroad bars. That, so they hired an old guy to stand out there and he had a lantern and he would just stand there and when a train would come, he'd stand there and, and wave his lantern and cars would know uh, you gotta slow down and stop if he's waving that lantern. It was kind of a boring job, but it kept people safe and he did it year after year. But, you know, finally, one night, the train was coming, a car was coming. He thought, oh boy, I better get up. And he got up and it was a windy night and it was kind of stormy, but he, he got out there and started waving his lantern and, and he saw the train coming, but the car didn't seem to be slowing down. And in fact, they just were accelerating. And he just kind of waved it a little more and more and more and the car just kept coming and sure enough, wham, the car just drove right through and smashed into the train and all the inhabitants of the car were killed. And the guy thought, why did they not stop? And then he looked down and noticed something that his lantern was not lit. I liken that to some of these guys that think they're doing good stuff, sending out their you know, messages of goodness and happiness and all that but they're not really shining the light. The light includes the whole message of Jesus Christ. And it's not just about, you know, what we want to talk about. We've gotta be sharing the whole, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And if we leave out some of the word, I think we might be leaving our lanterns unlit. We're, we're called to be the light of the world. <clears throat> and sometimes light illuminates things you don't even wanna see but you should see them nonetheless. Make sure as a Christian that you're one who's not afraid to speak the truth about the Bible to the people you work with, people around. I worry that we become cowards and we're afraid to talk about Jesus and our faith because of political correctness or people might hate us or because of this or that or the other thing. And what I would challenge you tonight on is simply this, um, to let your light so shine before all men. You know, if the salt loses its savor, it's gonna be no good if it's lost its flavor. We still need to be able to speak the truth and, and the full counsel of God. Don't be afraid to do that. Do it in love and, and sure, include grace and the love of God. That's the uh, huge part of it. That's the fun part, but also the full counsel. That's what we all need. That's what we learned mostly, I think, here in this section of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah did not diminish a word, got him into trouble. People hated him for it, but nonetheless, it was the truth and they needed to hear it. Um, may the Lord give us ears to hear what he says by his spirit in Jesus' name. Let's pray. And Lord, these three chapters here in Jeremiah, they remind us of so many good things of how we're to operate, Lord. And we thank you that Jeremiah is such a great example of just a tenacious sticking to the truth, um, being given to that burning in his bones to, to speak your truth, your word to the people. Even when he was challenged over it, Lord. Um, but I pray that we would represent you well and rightly. Lord, I pray that your word would come in through our mouths and we'd be able to speak the truth in love with effectiveness, with power, with authority, but also with words seasoned with grace. Give us that perfect balance, Lord, I pray.
Bless the church, we ask. And in these dark days, Lord, as we do sense that the, the time is near where you're gonna come and rapture your church and pour out your wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And that message is real. Give us a boldness to speak the truth that people might have ears to hear, that many might come to know you and be saved. So bless the rest of our evening. Thank you for this night getting into your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.